Follow along with me as I read from John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to his to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw <coughs> some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. That's the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. We tend to think that if people will only see or hear the right things, they will believe upon Christ unto salvation. In Luke chapter 16, we have the story of the rich man and poor Lazarus, both of whom die, the rich man going to hell and Lazarus to heaven where he is with Abraham. Rich man is in agony and asks Abraham to send Lazarus to his relatives to warn them that they might not have to go to a place of agony like him. And Abraham replies that they have all the warning they need in the words of Moses and the prophets. But the rich man insists that they need more and that if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Remember Abraham's response? They do not hear Moses and the prophets Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. You and I tend to think like the rich man that if people are given enough evidence, they will believe. If only God will show himself in his glory in a miracle, doing something extraordinary and supernatural that cannot be humanly explained. Or if God would appear in person, or even just endow a messenger with a super ability to present the message of the gospel in an eloquent, winsome, convincing, powerful way, giving a philosophical and reasonable and logical answer to every opposing argument that, 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 that can't be refuted, then the most hardened of sinners will have to see the truth and consequently will repent and believe. As a result, in our desire to see people believe in Christ, we tend to turn to our own methods and timetables and we can very easily begin to try to take charge of the conversion of sinners. We will find the method that will work. I'm convinced that there are many in churches today who think just like that rich man and thus are very frustrated with the fact that God doesn't just reveal himself in a miraculous way. They want to tell Jesus what to do. Just come down from heaven and show yourself. Appear on the clouds. Show the world you are God. And if he would do this, it is thought people would be convinced of who he is in a saving way. All of the difficulties and challenges that we face in evangelism and mission work would just fade away and above all sinners would be saved in droves. 
since God won't do this, the thinking um, is that it's left up to us to do our best to convince sinners to come to Christ for salvation. And this perspective explains in large part the methodology of churches today trying to attract people to the Lord Jesus Christ, to attract people into believing. This constant quest to find just the right method or situation that will convince sinners. John chapter 2 in the record of Jesus' first miracle instructs us in these matters. I think in order to understand the significance of Jesus' first miracle, it's helpful to see how the principles that have been introduced in John chapter 1 relate to Jesus' miracle of turning water into wine. It seems that with John, everything is connected. And considering the lessons of Jesus' first miracle, we are in a sense dealing with things that John has already introduced and explained. And so by way of reminder and review, especially since it has been a number of weeks that I've preached on the Gospel of John, and additionally as a way to make the lessons of chapter 2 clearer and more memorable, I would direct your attention to what John has already said in uh, chapter 1, where he has laid out some very important principles that are going to really um, guide our, our understanding of the whole of John's Gospel. So John begins, you remember, by telling us in the clearest of terms who Jesus is. He is the creator. He is God himself. He is the one who brings spiritual life to sinners by bringing light. And light is to be equated with truth. To be in the light means to have a saving knowledge of Jesus, a savior from sin. Being the light of men, Jesus enables people to see the truth of who he is, the truth of who they are and their need of him and that there is salvation from from sin's judgment through faith in him. People are to be saved and have eternal life. They need Jesus to be their light. And this light is needed, John has said, because there is darkness. This is in chapter 1, verse 5. There are people and spiritual forces that are against Jesus and who do not want his truth for themselves or for others. The Greek says literally in verse 5 that the darkness hasn't laid hold of the light. The idea is that the darkness hasn't laid hold of the light to overcome it or destroy it. That's the idea that we have in the ESV translation of verse 5. It says the light has not, um, the darkness has not overcome it, which means that the forces of darkness and, and people in spiritual darkness hate and oppose the light of God's truth in Jesus but are not able to destroy the light. But there's also the possibility that I introduced when we considered that verse earlier that the text could mean that the darkness doesn't lay hold of the light of Christ in faith, which implies rejection of the light, not necessarily trying to destroy or overcome the light. It's simply a a, a darkness that doesn't lay hold of the light by faith, instead choosing darkness over the light. But either way, the point is that not all people experience the light of the gospel giving them saving understanding of the truth. It's true to experience that among people in darkness, there are both those who reject and oppose the gospel, some simply wanting to just ignore it, with others deliberately opposing it. Nevertheless, as John goes on to explain, the light of the gospel is to be presented by God's people to people in darkness. And John the Baptist is, giving, is given as an example of this. We are told he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him, verse 7. 
regardless of the fact that there are people in darkness who reject the light, the goal of gospel witness is that all people, people of every tribe and tongue and nation to whom the gospel might come would believe. That is our hope, that is our desire, even the goal, even though this goal that all will believe is not realistic, as John points out. In verse 9 and following, John explains. And first, we are reminded that the light that John is referring to is not simply truth about our world, such as scientists and scholars might discover, but it's truth about Jesus and about how everything in the world relates to him. This is truth that Jesus must reveal to us if we are to know it and understand it. For as John says, Jesus is the true light. He is in himself the revelation of God and of his plan of salvation. And coming into the world, Jesus was shining light on everyone, verse 9. Notice in the ESV, it, it says, um, the true light which gives light. And I explained, and I think it needs to be understood very clearly, that the idea is not giving light, which implies that everybody is given salvation. No, but the light is shined on everyone. Jesus was shining light. That's what the Greek says. They're shining light on everyone. And all who have come into contact with him, <clears throat> then we understand, has been exposed to the light of God's truth. And consequently, in a way, are forced into making a decision for or against him, a decision of faith or rejection. The everyone on which Jesus shines then would be all of the Jews and Gentiles who hear the gospel. And the idea is that with Jesus coming as a savior for the whole world, everyone who hears the gospel is exposed to the light of God's truth. It could be, as others explain, that the everyone is literally every single person in history and the references to how Jesus in his work as judge on the last day will shine light on everyone by exposing their sin and the nature of their relationship with him. Acts 17, verses 30 and 31 says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. It's Jesus, of course, who is this judge who has been raised from the dead. And Jesus will one day... Um, expose everything that all have done. No one will be able to escape the penetrating gaze of Jesus as he reveals the hearts of all men. And ultimately, the judgment of sinners as either being justified or condemned will boil down to whether or not they are in union with Christ by faith. <clears throat> Pardon me. <clears throat> so the question will be, are they they trusting Christ or not. Christ will be the one who, as the all-knowing God, can see into everyone's hearts and make a perfect judgment. That is at least one way that Jesus will show himself to be the light of the world. So, in a sense, not entirely positive, right, as far as the unbelieving world is concerned. And the point, as John goes on to set forth, is that as the light of the world... There's always a twofold response to him of those who do not know or receive him and those who do receive him in faith. In the first category are those who do not know him, verse 10. The word know is more than knowing about him. It means acknowledging him uh, to be who he truly is, that he is God, that he is the revelation of God. 
who in himself is the light that gives life. But before the coming of Christ, so many in the world had never been exposed to this light, and so they had no hope of seeing the light. That they were spiritually in darkness is evident from the fact that when Jesus appeared in history, they didn't know him. Again, verse 10. Without the light of Jesus having shone upon them, they had no way of understanding Jesus to be the word of God, the creator and the light who brings life. And this remains true of the world in general. I'm referring to people who are blind and remain in their darkness because they've not heard about Jesus. The light of Jesus, the light of the gospel hasn't shone upon them. This was true of most of the world in John's day. The light of Jesus had only barely shined upon the Gentile world. And the result was that most of the world had no knowledge that the light was even coming and no knowledge that he had come. But there was within the world some upon whom the light of the gospel had undoubtedly shone for centuries, in fact. John turns from talking about the world in general to talking about the Jews in particular who knew all about Jesus coming. And sadly, this exposure to the light didn't change things in terms of, for many of them, their inherent spiritual darkness. So that John states that even when Jesus came to his own people, they did not receive him. Verse 11. These are people who had been given the opportunity to know who Jesus is through the special revelation of the Old Testament scriptures, which in many ways functioned as a light pointing to the coming Christ through its prophecies, through its promises, through the, the ceremonies of the sacrificial system. The people of God were told of a coming Savior, one who was both God and man, who would atone for their sins. And then, of course, there was, as John is describing in particular, the special revelation of Jesus' actual presence among his own people, the Jews. As he taught them and as he performed miracles to verify his identity, but they closed their eyes to this light shining upon them because of their preference for darkness. And if we stopped at chapter 1, verse 11, we would have reason to think that the entire world of sinful man was lost forever. We would be left with a world where the light of Jesus is shining, but sinners are never able to benefit from it. But then we read on in verses 12 and following of the fact that there are those who do receive Jesus in faith, believing in his name, Believers who are given the right to become children of God. And it's explained by John that these sinners are not saved because of their race. They're not saved because of their upbringing in a covenant home. Receiving Christ is not a matter of people making a decision. Salvation is a matter of God sovereignly and graciously deciding to elect and save sinners, all of whom are naturally in darkness, none of whom deserve to see the light. But rather than this need for God's grace excusing us, we stand all the more condemned because the reason why God's grace and decision are the deciding factor in our receiving of Christ by faith is because without God's intervention to send his son to save us and even God's intervention to regenerate us and give us faith, without that we would still be in such deep darkness that we would be unwilling and unable to know and receive Christ. Let it be stated very clearly that this darkness is not something that has arbitrarily happened to us or that God has unfairly cast us into. We are in darkness as judgment for our sin. Spiritual darkness is due to Adam's sin. It is what mankind, including you and me, deserves. And yet, nevertheless, what John goes on to describe is the miracle of grace that he and others, whom he collectively calls we, 
had personally experienced. He bears witness to this grace by highlighting the positive response that he and the other disciples were enabled to give to Jesus. It was in their lifetimes that the light came into the world, and they had the privilege of seeing his glory and receiving him. John puts it this way, the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. Way of describing the incarnation of the Son of God when Jesus was born and lived as a man. Regarding Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, John says, We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. His glory was ultimately due to his divinity as the divine Son of God. Jesus is God, and he is worthy of our worship. His glory is also related to his being full of grace and truth. Think of how glorious Christ is because he is full of grace. His coming was all about the grace of dying in our place on the cross and in that way bearing the judgment that our sins deserve. His coming was about the grace of salvation, the grace of loving sinners like you and me who deserve punishment. This grace was designed to bring him glory as we worship him for his saving love. His glory is also related to his being full of truth. He is the very revelation of God who shines into our dark world. In his earthly ministry, his light shone forth over people in both his messages and in his actions. In his teaching and preaching, he expounded the truth of how great God's love is that he would send his own son to die for us. The light which shines on everyone was shining as Jesus called sinners to repent and to put their trust in him. The light was shining as Jesus told the truth about men's need for him as well as the forgiveness that he offers that enables us to have a relationship, a friendship and fellowship with a holy and righteous God. Even though we are the ones who have offended him through our disobedience. And then we have the revelation of truth that came through his actions that served to support his teaching. We, we find record of how he lovingly interacted with sinners, even offering salvation to those sinners deemed by society to be outside of the hope of salvation. So clear was Jesus' love for sinners by, um, by how he acted that he had the reputation of being a friend of sinners. And as the ultimate revelation of God's love for us, he suffered and he died. Undergoing a horrible, unjust trial and then crucifixion at the hands of cruel men. Ultimately, though, under the, the judgment of God as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Furthermore, the glory of Jesus is set forth in part in how he came as the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system. And the glorious thing it is that we don't have to follow all of the Old Testament requirements of the ceremonial law. We live in the age of fulfillment, where the light of God's revelation is so much clearer. We no longer worship God and trust in him for salvation through these ceremonies and rituals that were shadows of the reality to come. Now, our trust is in a living person, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has actually paid the penalty of our sin. We worship a living Savior who died for us and who rose again and who is now exalted at the right hand of God the Father. We worship the one who has fulfilled the promises of God relating to earning our salvation. What glory Jesus revealed regarding God's love and his grace, his mercy, his faithfulness, his wisdom, his justice, his truth, his power. 
when he died on the cross, especially in the cross, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And furthermore, throughout the time of his earthly ministry, Jesus performed miracles as a way to prove who he is. He set forth what he had come to do as Savior. And in these ways, Jesus' glory was manifested. Even though it's true, the word becoming flesh involved great humiliation. Yet Jesus' glory as the divine Son of God come to save sinners was on display for those who had eyes to see it. This is the background behind Jesus now revealing his glory in this first miracle, what John calls, notice, a sign. We don't find the word miracle here, but we find the word sign. I will explain the significance of that word in a moment. But for now, basically, a sign is a miracle. John tells us toward the end of his gospel, what is the purpose of these miracles or signs? In John chapter 20, beginning Verse 30, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the goal of miracles, of these signs, is faith. The goal is that sinners would become children of God. The goal is that people would be drawn to the glory of Christ and put their faith and trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins and the hope of eternal life. These are the things that lie in the background and that we must remember as we consider this first miracle. As we delve into Jesus' first sign, I've organized our consideration of this text under three points. First, the occasion of the sign. Second, the sign itself, and then third, the result. This evening, we focus on the occasion of the sign. There are, I understand, three words or phrases that are used in Scripture in connection with what we call the miracles of Christ. There is the word that is usually translated as miracles, or in some cases, mighty works. And this refers to the works of God on earth that highlight his power beyond the normal actions related to his works of providence as he sustains and rules all things. Now, there's a sense, and theologians talk of this, and there's a sense in which God's mighty works are displayed every day in in all of the things around us that are a part of this creation. We could point to to the rising and setting of the sun, which is in its own way a miracle. We can We can refer to the birth of a child. So many things around us that take place that should fill us with awe of the Lord's power and of his might. But miracles are, properly speaking, works of God that are immediately recognized as outside of his normal activity. These are actions that God demonstrates in this world that serve to manifest his mighty power in unmistakable and extraordinary ways that anyone with spiritual eyes to see know that God has intervened and and that there is no natural explanation for what has happened. For example, to raise someone from the dead, to cast out a demon, to stop a storm with a word of command, to feed 5,000 men plus women and children from five loaves and two fish. These are things that no scientist can possibly explain. And this word for mighty works is, interestingly enough, not found in John's gospel, but it's found in the other gospels and in other places. But there is another word that is linked with the word for signs and is typically translated as signs and wonders. 
The word for wonders refers to things that God does that strike us as amazing because, again, they are outside of the realm of what we consider to be normal, things that are expected in the course of our earthly life. And this combination of words is found only once in John's gospel, coming up in chapter 4, verse 48, in the form of a rebuke when Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And then there is the word signs that John prefers and regularly uses in his gospel, a word that highlights the fact that Jesus' miracles were not just displays of power meant to impress, though that's certainly not to be left out, but they are mighty works that point to spiritual realities. For a sign is something physical of this earth that points to something spiritual. Lloyd-Jones put it this way, he says, a sign is a miracle with a message. And in the first 12 chapters of John, there are seven signs that will be highlighted from Jesus' earthly ministry. Now, like he said in uh, the apostle in, in John chapter 20, there are many, many signs that Jesus performed, and they've not all been recorded. John records seven in the first 12 chapters. And then beginning with chapter 13, the Lord's attention turns to his disciples and preparing them for his departure. But notice that out of the many signs the Lord performed, the Holy Spirit has chosen to highlight only seven, including this first sign of changing water into wine. This first miracle or sign took place in connection with a wedding celebration in the town of Cana of Galilee. And I would have you think about geography for a moment, just basic geography of the land of Palestine. Jesus was, we are told, baptized in the Jordan River near Bethany beyond the Jordan. So that places him in chapter 1, verse 28. There in this town of Bethany, we don't know exactly where this town was, but basic to the geography of Israel is uh, the the, uh, Sea of Galilee to the north, out of which to the, and this is all on the eastern border of Israel. So we have the the Sea of Galilee uh, to the north, out of which to the south flows the Jordan River, and the uh, Jordan River flows down into the, uh, to the Dead Sea in the far south. And so Bethany beyond the Jordan would be to the south and the east of the Sea of Galilee. Now Cana was, we are told, a city in Galilee. Galilee is the name of a region, the region that is just west of the Sea of Galilee. We believe that Cana was straight west of the Sea of Galilee and around 8 to 10 miles north of Nazareth. Nazareth also Um, in the region of Galilee. Um, Nazareth was, we believe, 20 miles or so northwest of Bethany beyond the Jordan. And so it's thought that altogether that Jesus and his disciples in traveling to this wedding in Cana of Galilee from Bethany beyond the Jordan, they must have traveled about 30 miles by foot. And this would account for the reference in the beginning of chapter 2 to three days. It says, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. It took several days for Jesus and his disciples to make this trip. Perhaps you didn't catch this in our earlier uh, consideration of chapter 1, but in both chapters 1 and 2, John very carefully tells us what happens day by day, and the time frame adds up to a week. So we have here really the first recorded week early in the Lord's ministry. And the chronological order begins with the reference in chapter 1, verse 29, to the next day. 
Well, the day before that, the first day in this chronology, in this sequence, was when the delegation of Jews came from Jerusalem trying to figure out who John the Baptist was. The next day, chapter 129, John the Baptist announces Jesus to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The next day, we're now at day three, it's referenced in chapter 1, verse 35, is when Andrew and John began following Jesus as disciples. Andrew's brother, Simon Peter, also began to follow Jesus. And there's reason to believe that the apostle John also spoke to his brother and that James began following Jesus at this time. And then we have the next day, day four, chapter 1, verse 43, where we find the calling of Nathaniel and Philip. And it's on the third day, after day four, that Jesus is at the wedding in Cana. And so days five and six were travel days. The wedding was on day seven. And it's worth pondering, is there any significance that this miracle of the Lord falls on the seventh day in this sequence? Now, not necessarily on the actual Sabbath day, but at least falling on the seventh day in this weekly pattern. I think we would normally not want to try to make something of all of this, except for the fact that John very deliberately lets us know the sequence of days. Plus, what happens on the final day, we are told, is a sign. And again, an event that is called a sign tells us that we are to think about what it all means in terms of Christ and spiritual matters. There is a lesson here. There are things for us to learn. It's interesting to note that according to Chapter 21, verse 2, Nathanael was from Cana, so there may have been some connection with him that led Jesus and the disciples to go to Cana to this wedding. We don't know who was getting married, but it was apparently a wedding to which Jesus' mother uh, to, and, and to which Jesus and his disciples were all invited. And what happens at the wedding, in a nutshell, is that in the middle of the wedding, the, the, the wine runs out, and Jesus ends up turning what was mere water into wine. The wine was then presumably enjoyed by the wedding guests, and the bridegroom was saved from embarrassment. In the context of events leading up to the miracle, Jesus has an interaction with his mother. His mother was apparently involved in the catering of the wedding, as she is the one who informs Jesus that the wine has run out. It's hard to know exactly what Mary was thinking and expecting, But Jesus' words to her are a mild rebuke that indicates that she is overstepping her bounds. And in the end, she backs off and in faith gives the matter over to Jesus to do as he desires. Now, there's much more to be said about this passage in terms of what this sign means spiritually, which will be for next time. But for now, take note of the fact that signs were given that people might believe. But to believe, people must have their spiritual eyes opened through Jesus the light. And this is all related to Jesus' words to Mary, my hour has not yet come. Those words spoken there in, uh, let's see, which verse is that? Verse 4, those words that he speaks to his mother Mary, they have met with much discussion among commentators as to their meaning and import. Some have suggested that Jesus is referring to the ministry of doing signs, but that view seems to be contradicted by the fact that minutes, seconds later, he does perform a miraculous sign. And furthermore, if we look at how this expression, my hour has not yet come, is used by Jesus throughout the Gospel of John, it's used consistently and clearly 
in reference to Jesus' trial and crucifixion at the very end of his earthly ministry. And so that leads us to ponder what's going on that Jesus would bring up the matter of the hour of his crucifixion at this juncture in his reply to Mary. And what we notice throughout the Gospels is Jesus' concern to make sure that the timing of these events is on the right schedule according to the divine plan. Again and again, Jesus will tell people who have seen his glory in a miracle to not let anyone know. And, and I think we're sometimes confused by that. Why would he not want just everyone to know? But he, he would sometimes tell them, don't tell anybody. And it was because his time had not yet come. Jesus' concern is that if the word gets out, he's going to end up going to the cross sooner than desired. The wrath of sinful man that will compel them to crucify him will build up before its appointed time. So think about what this means. Think about what it means that Jesus is concerned with this, even with his very first miracle, that his hour has not yet come. It proves that what John has said in chapter 1 of sinners being in darkness and rejecting the light. As the light of Christ's glory shone forth, in his miracles, revealing divine power, revealing his majesty, not everyone believes. Not everyone responds with faith. Not everyone responds with, with joy. When Jesus performed the miracle of turning water into wine, there were two parties that knew what happened. And I believe that, in part, Jesus was, was willing to do this miracle because it was fairly hidden. The servants who brought the water turned into wine, brought the wine to the head waiter. They knew what happened. Jesus' disciples, including his mother, knew what happened. We read in verse 11 that his disciples believed in him. Nothing is said of the servants believing. Now, we don't want to make too much of Scripture silence, but it would have been very easy for John to have included the servants in reporting those who responded in faith to the first of Jesus' signs. I think the fact that only the disciples are mentioned tells us that the servants did not respond with faith. And this is true to life. It, it confirms Jesus' concern about his hour not yet having come. Even when the light of God's revelation shines upon people in the gospel, even when the very word of God dwells among us and manifests his glory, there are those who reject it. People who become angry. Later in John 3, the apostle will write about how some people hate the light. They hate the light. They don't want their wicked deeds exposed, he explains. They don't want to face the reality of their need for salvation from sin and that they will be judged and that they will be accountable to God. They don't want to be accountable to Jesus Christ. Meanwhile, by God's grace, some, in this instance, Jesus' disciples were enabled to receive the light of Christ's glory. And Jesus knew that performing signs Performing this miracle would elicit both of these responses. And the Lord, even at this point, early on in his ministry, is cognizant of the fact that he must not do too many miracles too soon because miracles serve as signs of spiritual realities that unregenerate sinners will not tolerate. And he must not go to the cross too soon. So he must not do too many miracles, too many public things, that will draw attention to who he really is. This evening, what about you? What is your response to the light of God's word, to Christ as the personal 
word and light of God, the divine source of all light and life for sinners. And you claim to have seen his glory in the gospel. As the greatness of Christ as the Son of God, and as your Savior, full of grace and truth, is that your perspective of him? Is he your Savior, full of grace and truth, full of glory? And have you been led to receive him in faith? See, it's not enough to admit that Jesus has done miracles. When Jesus' enemies will crucify him, they know who he is. They have witnessed the light of his glory. But to them, his glory was repulsive. His glory was rejected and despised. And so the question is not whether Jesus can perform miracles. The question is not whether or not he reveals divine glory. The question to be answered is whether his glory compels you to trust in him. And may it be so for everyone here. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your son. We thank you for sending him to pay the penalty of our sin. We thank you for the glory that was revealed in his life on earth, in his messages of truth, his messages of grace, in his very person as he suffered and died for us, as he performed miracles proving his divinity, proving his power over the curse of sin. Lord, we thank you for our Savior, and we pray that everyone here, every one of us, would respond to the glory of Christ with faith, with the reception of Christ as Savior, as our God and Lord, that our response would not be one of rejection. And Father, as we carry out the work of witnessing, may we not be discouraged by the fact that there are those who will reject the truth. This is something that the Apostle very clearly has told us, and the Lord's life confirms that many who see the glory of Christ, many of those who are exposed to the, the shining upon them of the truth of the gospel, do not like it. And so, Father, may we not be scared by that or, or, or uh, uh, tempted to, to quit in, in our witness, but understand that this is the spiritual battle that we are called to, to be a part of. So, uh, Father, may we be uh, encouraged, in fact, as we continue to proclaim the truth, understanding that this is exactly um, the kinds of responses that come to the truth, the true light, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the lessons of this text, which we look forward to um, understanding even more next time. And uh, Father, we give thanks in Christ's name.